0: So today um, we are in the second sermon of our series in Book of Acts. Okay, and throughout this book, the goal is very simple. The goals of the Book of um, Mark, sorry, not the Book of Acts, Book of Mark is we want to know the real Jesus. I mean, who is Jesus, and what does it mean for us to have personal relationship with Jesus? Because as we mentioned last week, if we only have our own imagination of Jesus, that Jesus is useless to us. That Jesus cannot do anything for us. So that's why through the words of Mark, we want to get to know who is Jesus. Okay? And last week, we were introduced to Jesus through the, works, through the words of Mark. But today is a bit different. Okay? Today, we actually will see Jesus in person, in action. Okay? And it is stunning. Because in this passage that uh, Cowry just read for us, we get to actually hear Jesus speak to us for the first time. And this passage is actually the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. So it's like this, it's like, imagine Jesus has a press conference and introduced himself and his ministry. And unlike many pastors, Jesus' sermon, Jesus' message is perfect from the very beginning. Now, I still remember one of my earliest sermons, okay? I preached this when I was 19, okay? I started preaching when I was 16, but I preached this sermon when I was 19. I remember clearly because I was invited to preach at Surabaya, okay, at one of the young adult youth um, service. And let me tell you, it was beyond terrible. Okay, it's not terrible. It's beyond terrible. I preach on, anyone want to guess what text? David and Goliath. Okay, and in my sermon, okay, I do not have the copy of the sermon manuscript, praise God, but I remember what I said. Okay, this is what I said, something along this line. In order to defeat Goliath, we must have godly ambitions. Sounds good. Look at David. He was determined to defeat Goliath. Why? Because he was overreaches tax free life, and a beautiful daughter king of the king to marry. So he saw Saul's daughter and he said, she's mine. David had a dream. David had a godly ambition. And without godly ambition, we cannot defeat our Goliath. Okay, that was my sermon. Okay, if I, can, if I can go back to the past and tell my younger past two things. Here's what I'm going to say. First, riches, fame, and women are not godly ambition, you dummy. That's number one. And number two, you shall not preach until you turn 25, (laughs) okay? Because if if you know anything, like, you know, on our website, in fact, I intentionally remove all my sermon in the early year. Okay, in our early years, I remove it as well because I listen to it like, I can't do this, okay? So I remove it. But Jesus is different. So from the moment Jesus stepped into the scene in the book of Mark, his sermon, his message is already perfect. He is the perfect preacher with the perfect message from very beginning. And Jesus does not need to take back anything that he said, okay? And in this press conference where he introduced himself, it is phenomenal. Okay, let's look at it. So I have four points to my sermon. The king's message, the king's call, the king's authority, and the king's heart. Look at the first one, the king's message, verse 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in these two verses, actually Mark introduced to us the sums up of Jesus' life ministry. So if you want to know what Jesus is all about, what Jesus' ministry on earth is all about, it's here in these two passages, in these two verses. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to preach this single message. And the message is called what? The gospel of God. And this is a very interesting wording because that means Jesus said, listen, the message that I'm going to tell you, proclaim to you is the gospel, but this is not human's invention. The gospel actually comes from God. God is the one who originated the gospel. So what is the gospel? We spent a little bit last week about this. So the gospel is actually mean good news, but it is not daily, ordinary good news. No, my friend, gospel means history making life shaping news. So, for example, um, today we have a Roman inscription that starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Okay, what does it mean? Basically, it is a story of Caesar Augustus' life, birth, and coronation, and how his life alters Roman history. And the word gospel is also used when an invading army was defeated in a battle, and then they send messengers back to the city and basically proclaim the good news. They say this, listen, guys. The battle's been won. The enemy's been defeated. We have nothing to fear. We are free. Now, can you feel the sense of celebration when the word gospel is used? So this is something big, history-shaping news. And my friend, again and again, let me tell you, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Because all other religion in this world says this, you know what, let me give you 10 advice on how you can be safe. But Christianity is the only religion that dares to say, let me tell you, it's been done. You don't need to do anything. Salvation's been done. It is finished. The battle is won. And this is the message that Jesus proclaimed. So from very beginning, Jesus tells us that his message is nothing to do with telling us 10 ways in order for us to be safe. Oh, no. What Jesus proclaimed to us is this, I come to fulfill the condition of salvation. I come so that you may receive, not achieve, you may receive salvation. This is the gospel. You know so far? But then in the message of the gospel, okay, the gospel is a very broad word, right? Okay, this is good news. But what is the content of that good news? Look at verse 15. Here's the content of the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Oh, I love it. So the first sentence that comes out of Jesus' mouth to describe his ministry actually packed with gold. He begins by saying this: the time is fulfilled. To say that the time is fulfilled, it means this that Jesus' entrance into the world, Jesus' entrance into the world, is not an accident. It means that Jesus' entrance into the world has been planned from the very beginning. So what Jesus says is: listen, that I come into the world, this is not God's plan B. This is God's plan from the very beginning. Now, how many of you love Avengers Endgame? Can I see Marvel fans Endgame? Okay. I absolutely love Endgame. Okay. Now, here's what's cool about Marvel Universe. Marvel Universe, okay, made 21 movie that lasted 11 years from 2008, to 2019. That tells one big story. So, all these 21 movies actually culminate in Endgame. So, when we watch Endgame, we're like amazed. This is like everything's built up to it. And here's what Jesus said. I have something better than my the universe. I have the good news of the gospel. This is it. So that, this is the time that everyone in the Old Testament has been waiting for. For 1,500 years, they've been waiting for these days. For, no, sorry, for 3,000 years, they've been waiting for these days. And everything that happened in the Old Testament, every prophet, every hero, every story in the Old Testament find its fulfillment in me. I have come to fulfill God's promises. So with another word, that means this. The story of the Bible, written by 40 orders over 1,500 years, they tell one big story. And that story is not about us living our best life now. No, no. The one big story of the Bible is not about us, but the goodness of God made known in Jesus. And Jesus not only proclaimed the gospel, He's saying here, He is the gospel. He came to fulfill everything that God has promised in the end, they continue to say, the kingdom of God is at hand, okay? So with the coming of Jesus, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, okay? What does it mean? It means that the kingdom of God, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come so near to us. It has, it's at hand. Now, why is this a good news? In order for us to understand why is this good news, we need to understand the concept of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, so if you go back to the beginning of creation in the book of Genesis, it says that we were created to live in the kingdom of God. There was no pain, no tear, no crime, no suffering. Everything in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything was perfect. Why? Because God was the king. But then what happened was, you know your Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, what happened was, rather than submitting to God's kingship, Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God. Aaron and Eve decided, you know what, I'm going to be my own king. And because of that, they decided, you know what, I'm going to be the main character of my story. And because of that, everything went into chaos. Let me put it this way. Imagine you bought a brand new Ferrari. Okay? So you pretty much, what, saved your money for the last 20 years and finally you buy that your dream car. You spend your life saving buying that dream car, your Ferrari. And you Absolutely love your Ferrari. Okay? Don't worry, there's no Hyundai, there's no Master in this illustration. Then one day, your niece or your nephew of 5 years old kids decided, you know what, I'm going to take that Ferrari for a drive. What happened? Chaos. You would know that? Everything will fall apart. By the end of that drive, your Ferrari will worth nothing. Well, why? Is that because there's something wrong with the car? Of course not. But the car, Ferrari, was not built to be driven by five years old. You would know that? The same with our life and this universe. Because we were created, the world was created for God to be the king. And when we rebel against God and we decided to be king of our life, what happened is creation fall apart. Everything fall apart. Our life fall apart. Relationship fall apart. Our health fall apart. But when Jesus said, listen, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, why is that good news? Because it means the rightful king of the kingdom of God has returned. And this king will make everything right. He will restore everything that was broken. But note the language is at hand. Because to say the kingdom of God is at hand, it means that it does not happen right now. Jesus said the kingdom of God is already here. Yes, yes. But at the same time, it's not fully here. It's still at hand. So yes, the kingdom of God is here and the restoration has begun. But the consummation of the kingdom of God is yet to come. So that means right now we live in the already and not yet tension of the kingdom of God. The king has come. And yet the fullness of the kingdom of God is still waiting. But then this is what he said. The second thing that Jesus said after the kingdom of God is at hand, he says "is repent and believe in the gospel. And this is the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus basically says, because the king has returned, because now the kingdom of God has come near, here's what we must do. We must repent and believe the gospel. And the word repent and believe in the gospel in the Greek, it is actually in a present imperative form. It means to repent is not a one-time thing, but to repent and believe is a continuous action. you got to do it all the time. So what does it mean to repent? The word repent comes from the word metanoia, which means simply this, a change of mind. So if before you basically walk to the right and you say, you know what, God? I'm going to be the king of my own life. I'm going to sit on the throne. I am the king of my kingdom. To repent is basically to say, hold on a second, God, I am wrong. I got it wrong all this time, you get it right, you are the king. So what you do when you repent, you stop running, walking to the right and you start to make turn to the left. But then to repent alone is not enough because Jesus said not only you need to repent, but what is the second thing? You need to believe in what? Believe in the gospel. So that means not only you stop running to the right, but now you turn and you start to walk to the left. And what is the left? The left says is that the king has come. And the king has come to us with good news. And our role as a Christian is not to try harder in life. Our role as a Christian is to receive that good news. To receive the fact that the king has come to purchase, to do what we cannot do on our own. He has come to bring us our salvation. And this is what's amazing, right? So Jesus says this, when you understand this, when you start to repent from your own way, and you start to believe in the gospel, here's what happened. When you come into relationship with this king, everything that was broken began to be healed. Everything that was fall apart became, began to come whole. And now you, know, you, need to, you need to relearn. You need to start to learn, understand who you are and what you're called to do. So when you embrace the gospel, it radically changed your life. This is the message of the king. Okay. But then what happened next is even, even more bewildering. Verse 16 to 20. So that's the king message. But now we will hear the king's call. Verse 16 to verse 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in the boat, in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired seven and follow him. Now. This is very interesting. Once again, we'll see the priority of Jesus. I mean, the first thing that Jesus does after his press conference, after he announces his coming to the world, the kingdom of God has come and I'm here to fulfill it, the first recorded ministry in the book of Mark, you know what? It's not a spectacular sermon. It's not miracle. But you know what it is? Discipleship. So now, and, and the way that Jesus approached discipleship is very different from the teacher of his days. Because in those days, teachers do not seek students. Students seek teacher. Okay? So what people will do is, people, if they want to have a teacher, what they will do, they will find the most qualified teacher. They will find the most respectable teacher of the law, and they will come to that person and they say, Hey teacher, hey rabbi, here's my credential. Here's why you should accept me as your disciple. So they compete with one another so, so they, they start to consider okay, which rabbi is actually better should, should I go to Rabbi Edric or Rabbi Joss oh, I think Rabbi Edric has more credentials so they will go to Rabbi Edric and say hey Rabbi Edric this is me this is my resume this is why you should accept me more than other people that's the way it works in those days but Jesus do it very differently Jesus' call is radically different look at verse 17 and Jesus said to them follow me and I will make you become a fishers of men. There are four things about Jesus' call to discipleship. First, it is Jesus who takes initiative. So it's not the disciple who seeks the teacher, but rather the teacher who seeks the disciple. It, it, it tells us this, is that in order for us to have relationship with Jesus, in order for us to be a disciple of Jesus, it does not begin with us seeking Jesus. Oh no, it begins with Jesus seeking Jesus. Us. That means, if today you call yourself a disciple of Christ, let me tell you, my friend, it is not an achievement. It is the gift of God. But the second thing, Jesus does not choose based on credentials, but grace. Now think about it, right? If you were Jesus, would you choose these four fishermen to be your first disciple? Like, okay, I can't speak for you, but if I was Jesus... I will not choose these four fishermen to be my first disciple. Okay, I want people with the most credential and potential. Okay? So if I have to choose disciple, I will choose someone who graduated from Harvard University. Not fishermen. But the wonder of the gospel, as we see again and again throughout the book of Mark, is this, that Jesus continuously called the unqualified people. And the fishermen, they're not required to do anything nor have any qualification. What they need to do to follow Jesus is simply say, yes, to the call of Jesus. Because they will learn their trade as they follow Jesus. So there's no precondition in following Jesus. And this, again, what separates the gospel from every other news in the universe. The gospel is not a story of good people who made the right choice to follow Jesus. See, the gospel is a story of unqualified people being called and transformed by the grace of the king. That is the gospel, my friend. And third, Jesus is the subject of the call. Now, this is unheard of because no teachers of the law ever say, follow me, none. All they say is this, hey, I'm going to teach you the law of God. I'm going to teach you Torah. I'm going to make you knowledgeable in the Torah, in the knowledge of the scripture. So when they follow their teachers, their allegiance is not to the teachers, but to Torah, the scripture. But when Jesus showed up, <laughs> Jesus called up, and you know what? I want you to follow me. Not Torah, not scriptures. I want your allegiance. I want you to give up the throne of your life to me. I want to be in control of your life. You must listen to me and you must be faithful to me. So the call of discipleship, according to Jesus, is not an invitation to sit in theological classes. The call to discipleship is an invitation to live with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to eat with Jesus, to have relationship with Jesus. He is the subject of the call. And fourth, and this is breathtaking, Jesus is the one responsible to fulfill the call. He says this, I will make you become fishers of men. Now, what is fishers of men? Okay, fishers of men are people who fish people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. So Jesus used the common common analogy of those days, fishing. So he says, so when you follow me, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of fishing for fish, I'm going to make you fish men and transform them and bring them from kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. And this is the call for every Christian. You and I, as a Christian, we are called to be disciples of Christ who make disciple of Christ. But what makes the call of Jesus radical is this. Whose responsibility is it to make us fisher of men? Not a tricky question. Whose responsibility it is to make us fisher of men? It's not us. Whose responsibility? Is Jesus because He says this? I will make you become fishers of men, and the word "become" means it's a process, it's a journey. As we stoke, stay close to Him, as we have relationship with Jesus, as we follow Jesus faithfully, here's what happened: slowly but surely, He changes us. Slowly but surely, He transforms us into Christ likeness. Become, we become disciple of Christ, who make disciple of Christ. And Jesus said, "This is my assignment, not yours." Your role, our role as disciples, is to follow Jesus. But here's what's interesting. I want you to pay attention to the way that these fishermen respond to Jesus' call. Simon and Andrew immediately lift their nets and follow Jesus. John and James immediately left their father and followed Jesus. So they don't say, hey, bro, I think Jesus is calling us. I wonder what dad thinks about it. Let's have a family meeting. No, they don't say that. So what they say, hey bro, Jesus is calling us. See you dad, ciao, ciao, bye. That's what happened in the story. This is radical. It means this, you cannot respond to Jesus' call halfway. There's no such thing as a halfway Christian. The only option is either you got jump all in or nothing at all. So what Jesus essentially said to the disciples is, I want to be the king of your life. It's either I sit on the throne or I'm not sitting at the throne at all. I must be the supreme desire of your heart. I want priority over your career, family. Everything else must look like a hatred in comparison to me. And you know why this really bothered my heart? Because today, I think a lot of them we think that we can be Christian. We can be Christian without becoming disciple of Christ. But Jesus doesn't have that standard. Jesus do not have double standard, one for follower of Jesus, one for disciple of Jesus. That distinction does not exist in Jesus' view. See, the call for discipleship is the call for every follower of Jesus. We cannot be a believer and not a disciple. We are either a disciple of Christ or we are not a believer in Christ. Now I'm going to speak predominantly to our church, Rock City International. Here's what I think we got to be very careful. If we're not careful, we can create familiarity with Jesus for discipleship. Because what I know about us is this. We like to flirt with Jesus. Do you know what I mean by flirting with Jesus? How many guys like to flirt with girls? Don't raise your hand. Okay, Flirting is fun right? Flirting is fun because when you flirt with someone, you can wink, you know, from the, to that person and then you can give them that stare from distance and then you can text message, hey, babe, you look hot today. You, you're even hotter than hell, something like that, right? It's fun. Flirting is fun. It's kind of like, oh, it kind of makes you feel special in, a, in, in some of way, but there's no commitment to it. But this is what I know about flirting. It does not change you. Flirting does not change. Flirting is fun, but it does no good to you and me. And what we a lot of time we try to do with Jesus is this: we try, we like to flirt with Jesus. How do we flirt with Jesus? Of course, by you know winking at Jesus. How do we wink at Jesus? By coming to church on Sunday, right? So we're like, "Hey, Jesus, I'm here," right? So we try to earn some brownie spawn with Jesus by coming to church, and then uh, maybe you know send text message to Jesus by what? By singing to Jesus, right? Jesus, I'm singing to you, okay. I'm saying, saying, Jesus, you're hot. Something like that. So we're flirting with Jesus, but at the same time, we do not have commitment to Jesus. And let me tell you, my friend, that is useless. Because what Jesus wants, discipleship, is actually about relationship, personal commitment with Jesus. So if your Christianity only involves coming to church on Sunday, coming to MC on Wednesday, and then raising your hand and praising God during songs, you're missing the point. What Jesus wants is not for you to flirt with Him. What Jesus wants is for you to be in relationship with Him. And here's what I know about relationship, even though I'm single. Relationship changes you. I mean, guys, come on. It is, there's no way you can be in relationship, committed relationship with a girl, and still play as much game as you do when you're single. Right, ladies? There's no way. If you think that you can still play game as much as you do when you're still single and you're in a relationship, you're being delusional. It's not going to work. And we understand this. And that's the same way with relationship with Jesus. Okay? I'm going to put it a different way. Okay? So it, that means this. In order for us to have relationship with Jesus, it will cost us something. It's not free. It will cost us something. So well, what does it cost? Everything. Simon, Andrew, John, and James. When they decided to follow Jesus, they have no idea where Jesus is taking them. They simply leave everything behind and follow Jesus. See, to follow Jesus is like signing an employment contract with nothing written on top of it. Jesus can write whatever he wants on the contract. Let me put it another way. To follow Jesus is like we are under arrest. Anyone ever get arrested? Once again, don't raise your hand. What happened when we are arrested? Here's what happened. We lose control of our life. We follow the officer no matter what. It means that our life is no longer about us. We are following the officer's. So that means when we surrender to Jesus, when we follow Jesus, it means that we lost control of our life. So there's no such thing as, listen, Jesus, I'll follow you if. That is not discipleship. Because if you're in a committed relationship with God, with Jesus, you simply say, Lord, I follow you no matter what. It's either all in or nothing. Either you are free or you are under arrest. There's no middle ground. Jesus do not have to standard. We are either disciple of Christ or we are not a believer in Christ. So the question that I want us to ask ourselves today is this. The question is not, well, am I in church today or not? I mean, that's shallow. I mean, that's good. Praise God that you're in church. But the question that I want you to ask yourself is this, am I willing to follow Jesus without knowing where he's taking me? These four fishermen have no clue where Jesus is taking them. See, they thought they're going to be the king's right hand. They have no idea that the road that Jesus is in, yes, it leads to glory. But before it leads to glory, it leads to the cross. And they have no idea that in a few months' time, they will fail Jesus, betray Jesus, abandon Jesus, and then be restored by Jesus. But that is precisely how Jesus turned them into fisher of men and unless we're willing to follow Jesus with no condition we're not disciple because the call of Jesus is invitation to die to ourselves and live for the king and the heart of following Jesus is not knowing where we are going but knowing the person whom we follow but here's the good news if you decided to follow Jesus the person we follow is no ordinary king my friend he is the king with all authority. Let's look at the third one, the king's authority. I love this passage. First, 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirit, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of the Galilee. Now, does anyone pick up what Mark's favorite word is? What's one word that Mark Mark continues to repeat? That word is this, immediately. Okay, You're going to continue to see this happening throughout the book of Mark. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Okay, Because the book of Mark is very fast-paced. So what happens is this. So right after he called his four fishermen to follow him, Jesus goes into Capernaum and immediately he teaches at the synagogue on the Sabbath. We do not know what Jesus teach, Okay, Mark does not record his teaching for us. But we know it's one heck of a sermon. How do we know? Because at the end of his sermon, people are like, oh my gosh, who the heck is this guy? He does not preach like all other teachers of the law. He does not teach like all other scribes. He preached with authority. So we know that the people are astonished at Jesus' teaching because Jesus is different. Jesus preached with authority. Because Jesus does not simply preach about God's word. Jesus preached God's word. And that is different. Okay, let me put it this way. When the teachers of the law teach the law, this is what they say. Well, church, thank you for coming to church. Thank you for coming to the synagogue. Today, this is what Moses said in the book of Genesis. Or this is what Samuel said in the book of Samuel. This is what David wrote in the book of Psalm. And that's how I preach as well, okay? But Jesus is different. Jesus does not say, this is what so and so said, or no. Jesus' sermon began like this. It is written, Amen, Amen, but I say to you. Now, do you see what happened? Now, if I ever say that to you, this is what the Bible says, my friend, Amen, Amen, but I say to you, let me tell you, run, okay? Because I don't have that authority, My authority to preach the word of God is based on what is already written, the word of God. But when Jesus preached, he had the audacity to say, hold on a second, this is what Samuel said, my friend. Let me tell you, let I say to you, ha, he preached with authority. Jesus does not take from derived authority. Jesus has the original authority. He not only speaks the word of God, he is the word of God. So this is something different. That's why people are like, hold on a second. This is very different from all other teachers of the law. And not only that, what's amazing, immediately, again, Mark's favorite word, immediately after he preached the sermon, here's a man with unclean spirit. In other words, a demon-possessed person. And a demon cries out, what are you doing here, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now I found this very, very, very astonishing. Why? For two reasons. First, the demon know exactly who Jesus is, because the people in the synagogue they're like, "Who the heck is this guy? This guy preached authority." But the demons know better. The demons not only think of Jesus as someone with authority to teach. The demon know this is the holy one of God. And second, the demon recognize his powerlessness before Jesus. The demon says, Jesus, are you here to destroy us? So with another word, there's no doubt in the demon's mind that there's nothing he can do before Jesus. I mean, it's not as if a question, is Jesus strong enough to destroy us? No, 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 no. It's a matter of when. Are you here? Is there the time for you to destroy us? And we can see from what happened next. I mean, this is so, so no contest. Because Jesus rebuked the demon and said, oh, shut up, will you? And get out of this person. And just like that, the demon flee in terror. I mean, this is not even a close contest. I mean, this is not like Hamilton versus Verstappen. Some of you are waiting for it tonight, right? This is not that. This is not even close. Jesus simply, poof, and bam, the demon flee. The closest illustration I can give to this is from my one, one of my favorite manga called One Punch Man. Anyone know that manga? Okay, I love that manga. So the main character of the story is called Saitama. And this dude is ridiculously strong. I mean, he can beat anyone with a single punch. Hence, one punch man. Okay. So one time, he faced this giant centipede. And this giant centipede is the size of a skyscraper. And it ran havoc in the city. And no one can stop it. All the heroes try, and they were powerless before the giant centipede. But the giant centipede make one big mistake. It attacked Saitama. And you know what Saitama does? Saitama punched the centipede in the face. That's it. Just one punch. Bam. And you know what happened? The centipede exploded. Okay, that's how strong Saitama is. Jesus, even better. Jesus does not need to punch the enemy. All Jesus needs to say is what? Get out. And the demon flee in terror. And when the people see what happened, they're blown away because they're like, who on earth is this man? Not only that he teach with authority, but now even the demons listen to him. Who is this guy? And at once, Jesus' fame spread all over the surrounding area. Okay, What does it teach us? This teaches us an important lesson. Here's this. Whether we believe it or not, there is a spiritual battle happening all around us there's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan I love the way C.S. Lewis put it there is no neutral ground in the universe every square inch every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan I think we need to guess this right because Lewis goes on to say it's very crucial that there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And Lewis said, both are fatal mistake. Now, some people see demons under every rock. So they blame the devil for everything. Every single problem, It's the devil's fault. So their spiritual hobby is exorcism. So if they meet someone who's 35 years old and single, they say, well, brother, let me tell you why you're single. Because you have demon of singleness on you. Let me pray for you. Let me cast out the demon of singleness. Out, out, out. And if nothing happened, they yell louder. Out, right? That's the first mistake. But the second mistake, I think, and this is where I think it's very fatal for us. The second mistake, there are many of us who've been lied to by the devil. Because one of the greatest achievements of Satan is to convince us that they do not exist. So now we try to explain everything through the logic of cause and effect. So we think that we're too smart to believe in the supernatural forces. And Lewis said, no, no, this is foolish. Foolish. I mean, it's very foolish for you and me to think that everything that happened in this universe is simply a result of human action. I mean, let me give you just one example: child trafficking. I mean, what kind of people will kidnap a 12 years old girl from her family and turn her into prostitute? And what kind of people who will actually pay to have sex with 13 years old? It's sickening. But you and I know that this is happening all around us, all over the world. And if we think that child trafficking and child prostitution is simply a result of cause and evac, oh my gosh, we've been so blinded by the devil. You say, oh no, it's about human greed, it's about human lust. Yes, but there's more to that. There's actually a work, the enemy who pushed us to the limit, who pushed the evilness of humankind to the limit that enable them to do that. So what Jesus is saying, listen, there is this other enemy. There is supernatural force at work called the kingdom of Satan. So that means for you and me as a Christian, when we follow Jesus, we must understand that there are enemies that seek to destroy us. And that is not your brothers and sisters. The serpents and demons are all trying to destroy you and me. That's the bad news. And the world that we live in right now is under the influence of the kingdom of Satan. But the good news is, when Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of Satan. And Satan and all his minions are powerless before the authority of Jesus. There's nothing whatsoever they can. They know their time is up. They know their time is coming to be destroyed. It's not a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And the king has come. This is the gospel. And let me tell you, Satan hates the gospel. Hates it so much. Because when we understand the gospel, we understand that they are powerless before God. Because the message of the gospel is not Jesus will cross Satan. Oh, no. The message of the gospel is it is finished. Jesus has won. Satan cannot do anything. Yes, he can try to hurt us. Yes, he can trick us into believing in his lie. But he is powerless before the might of King Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. So in 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 the coming of Jesus, in the first coming of Jesus, the kingdom invasion has begun. And when Jesus returns in the future, the kingdom invasion will be completed. And now we live in the tension of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. You with me so far? Fourth point, my last point. The king's heart. Verse 29 to verse 34. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he will not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I love this. So right after Jesus exercised his kingly authority over demons, Jesus goes to Peter's house and he sees Peter's mother-in-law. Sick with fever. And Jesus gently holds her hand, lifts her up, and heals her. And immediately, again, immediately the fever left her and she began to serve them. So one minute she's too sick to do anything, all she can do is lay in bed. The next minute she's serving Jesus. Her healing is complete, just like that. It shows us one again, once again, that Jesus not only has the authority of a demon, Jesus has authority. Over diseases. Jesus has absolute authority to restore this broken world. And what I love about this insignificant text that seems insignificant is this. It tells us that nothing is insignificant to God. Even Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. Jesus said that's important. Mark, write that down. I want people to know that I care about people's mother-in-law. And that's what happened in the text. It shows Jesus' heart and compassion for the people. Jesus is not too big for mundane moments, nothing too small. And then because of that, this, the, the news of Jesus healing the, mothers, the mother-in-law and casting out demons spread everywhere, right? And because of that, people began to come to Peter's house. So Mark writes that the whole city gathers at, in front of Peter's house. But what we know about the crowd most of them do not come to that place to follow Jesus. Oh no. Most of them want something from Jesus. What do they want? Healing. What do they want? Freedom from bondage. In other words, what they would seek when they come to that place is not Jesus, but what Jesus can give them. And if I was Jesus, I'd be like, no dudes, you're just taking advantage of me. I'm not going to do this for you. But you know Jesus is different. Jesus knows exactly that these people come from wrong reason, but he heals them. He meets people where they are. He extends a hand to them, and he heals them. He genuinely cares for people, even though they have wrong motivation. It tells us that Jesus is willing to meet people where they are. But then, it does not step there. Jesus wants to be the one that they admire the most. Jesus wants to be the one that they desire the most. Jesus wants to be the end, not simply the mean, And he will not stop until he has the people's heart, as we will see in the following chapters. So let me close with this. So the question for you and me is this, well, how can we follow Jesus and trust Him unconditionally. Well, how can we remain on the road that He has set for us when we don't even know where are we going? Especially when we follow Him, feels like my life is falling apart. How can I stick on the road? How can I continue to follow Him unconditionally? Here's how. When Jesus called His fishermen to follow Him and leave everything behind, Jesus has left everything behind to seek them. Jesus left the glory of heaven. Jesus left the throne of his father. Jesus left the glory of his kingdom. And Jesus entered this broken world and invaded the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus knew exactly where the road will lead him. He's not blind to it. He knew exactly, yes, he will be the king. But before he become the king, before the kingdom will finally be consummated, he has to go to the cross. He knows it. He knows that the road that he's in will lead him to his dad. In order to give us the good news of the gospel, he knew he had to pay the price. Jesus followed his road faithfully into hell on earth, so that when we finally trust him and follow him, the road will take us to God. Jesus followed his road to destruction, so that when we follow him in this road, it led us into greatness. This is how we can follow Jesus unconditionally. When we, see, when we see that Jesus is a king with all authority, Jesus is the king with all the power, he has the ability right now to crush us, yet he used the authority to die for us. He was crushed for us so that we could be with him forever and ever. He is a king like no other king. He's the king that we do not deserve, but we desperately need. So, how do we follow Jesus? Here's how. Look to the path that he's in right now. Look to the path of the gospel. Look the price that he has paid for that path for you and me, and follow him. So the question that I want to leave you today is this. Not, are you at church? That's shallow. The question that I want to leave all of us with today is this. Are you following Jesus. Because if you're not, today there's an invitation on the King of Kings. Follow me, and I will make you become Fisher of Man. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Jesus, we can't say thank you enough for never giving up on us, for walking on that road that led to the cross. You knew exactly where that that road will lead you. And yet you step into it and you walk faithfully to the end. So that right now when we follow you into that road, we know that that road will not lead into destruction. That road is painful, yes. That road will allow, allow us to experience the cross, yes. But that road will end in eternal glory. So help us to follow you on the road that you have set before us. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.